Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's rising agent is Brandon Hunt with Show Appeal Realty in Tempe, Arizona. He works the Metro Phoenix market and has been an agent for seven years. Last year, Brandon closed 52 transactions with a total sales volume of $11.7 million. His average sales price was $228,000. 3% were buyers and 97% were sellers. He operates as an individual agent, a sole practitioner. Brandon is a true entrepreneur. He operates a unique business model with two sides. On side one, Brandon owns a traditional brokerage company. On side two, Brandon manages a fix-and-flip investor business. Brandon's traditional brokerage company is called Show Appeal Realty, which has a professional stager on staff. He hired a professional manager to run the day-to-day operation. Brandon focuses his efforts on lead generation, follow-up, and infrastructure systems for his 27 agents. Pay attention to his buyer lead generation system utilizing the latest in search engine optimization, SEO strategies, and internet data exchange IDX syndication to generate 30,000 unique visitors per month and 8 to 13 hot buyer leads per day. Not bad for a company that's only been around for a year and a half. Brandon's fix and flip investor business is called Nuff Said Enterprises. He identified a need in the market for clean, beautiful, fixed up, and ready to move in homes. He teamed up with an investor. Brandon provides the management, the investor provides the money. Together they buy foreclosure homes at the courthouse steps, fix them up, and sell them fast. The typical transaction is only eight weeks from buy to fix to sell, all in a declining market. Typically, he has 13 to 17 homes on the books and manages three construction crews simultaneously. Brandon thinks outside the box. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brandon. Hi, thank you, Mike. Brandon, before we get started in what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute to your your pre-agent life and talk about what were you doing before you got into real estate? Prior to real estate, I had just graduated college at Indiana University at the Kelly School of Business with a major in marketing. I came out to Arizona uh, having never been to Arizona before, and uh, I, I was networking with the alumni network for Indiana University and came across a salesperson that had been in the business for 15 years. And this was back in 2004 when the market out here in Arizona was booming, and he was looking to expand his business. So I came on board his team um, to mentor under him and get used to the business and get to know the business from someone that had been in it for 15 years. 
So you basically jumped right in from college. You didn't have any, any jobs that you did prior to real estate. Yeah, prior to real estate, uh, no. I mean, I had a couple jobs here and there throughout college. You know, telemarketing was one of them, probably the worst job I ever had to do. Uh, but it actually gets you comfortable on the, on the phone, which is actually a good lead into real estate. You know, I worked at a factory one summer. I bust tables and wash dishes at a restaurant. So I've kind of been through all the uh, jobs a normal teenager and college student would go through. You started this business seven years ago. Why did you decide to get into real estate? Was it because of the, the chat with the mentor or did you already decide you wanted to get into real estate prior to that? Well, that's a good question. I, I really never could foresee myself uh, going into real estate prior to meeting uh, my mentor in 2004. I always thought I, I'd graduate college with a good uh, degree. I'd go into corporate America and work my, work my way up that route. But it was such a great opportunity uh, that I just could not pass up. I mean, the market was booming. It was a great uh, way to, to learn the business and become an entrepreneur, which really at heart is, is what I am. When you got started, did you have a fast start in the business or a slow start in the business? When I started, I had a very fast start uh, to the business. I think in 2005, I closed around 33 transactions, um, all buyer transactions, out-of-state relocations. Uh, so 33 transaction, I think the average sales price was uh, somewhere in the low 200000 So at that time, uh, you know, just getting out of college, uh, closing that volume at that price point, point was a pretty good fast start for me in my real estate career. Describe the current real estate market in Tempe, Arizona. Well, the current real estate market here is just full of great opportunity. Um, prices are at historically um, low prices where you can get great cash flow, um, great appreciation in, in the market in, in future years, especially if inflation sets in. So um, other agents might look at the market and say it's depressed. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of distressed sales. I look at it and I see opportunity to generate revenue. And especially in, in this market, if you can figure out the best niche to be in to generate the best return on investment, it can be very lucrative uh, for you. And it's all about how you leverage that niche to generate transactions because it's generating transactions that really will help grow your business. So you've taken advantage of these low prices to generate positive cash flows. Exactly. What I started in 2008, I saw a niche in the real estate market here in Arizona. Um, this was before I got into the investment side of my business, which is what I do today. I was taking some buyers out, and they were first-time home buyers, and they didn't have a lot of capital reserves, you know, just enough to put down a, a down payment and cover closing costs. And the market started to shift to being a lot of distressed properties, uh, short sales in particular, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with by now. And they just could not wait six months to, to figure out if they were going to get the house or not. They had to be on a 30-day, you know, close of escrow schedule. And we went and viewed some bank-owned homes, REOs at that time, that were pretty beat up. Um, they were just not move-in ready. And my client's you know, only had the capital to put down the down payment, the closing costs, and didn't have that extra five, ten, fifteen thousand to reinvest in the property to 
to get it move in ready. So that's when the light bulb went off, per se, in my head and said, well, there has to be a way to provide a product that's in move-in ready condition uh, that can close in 30 days. I mean, it's not a, a novel concept, but it just was not out there in the marketplace for what uh, the buyers were looking for. So I did some investigating and found uh, the best way to purchase real estate at the rock bottom prices is at trustee sales. Trustee sales are the sales that are sold at the courthouse steps that are auctioned off to the highest bidder. So I approached an investor and uh, of this idea of this niche market, and he said, you know, I, I believe that you might be onto something. Uh, and he, he seated me with $600,000 in capital. And uh, I just took that capital. I uh, purchased some properties. I got a crew um, of contractors and subcontractors to fix up and rehab the property and in turn would resell them for a uh, profit to the buyers that were looking for that property or that kind of need in the market. Why don't we take a second at this point and tell our listeners that there are two parts to your business now that you've developed. One, you have a traditional brokerage where you're the broker and you have how many agents underneath you? I have 27 agents, and I actually hire out the broker in my company. I, I just uh, I don't need that kind of responsibility, I guess, and uh, it's better off having someone that can devote the time uh, to the agents and the paperwork that's needed. So you have a managing broker on your, your brokerage side, and then you have a separate business that you run where you you're developed this idea of taking these properties from the trustee sale, fixing them up, and sell them to move-in ready buyers. Yes, exactly. And the name of your brokerage business is? Show Appeal Realty. And the name of your fix and flip business is? Nuffstead Enterprises. Throughout this interview, we'll try to talk about both sides of the business. They're both rather exciting. Uh, since we started on Enough uh, Said, let's talk a little more about that. Seems like you, you found a niche and you've developed it. You started that in 2008, and it sounds like you've grown that. Now, you said you started with an investor initially. Are you still working with that investor? Yes, that investor is still my partner today, and we've uh, done approximately 135 flips. Uh, from that beginning in, in mid-2008. And a lot of people questioned, you know, whether you could flip in a declining market. Of course, uh, the market here in Arizona and, and Phoenix in particular has dropped uh, considerably since two, 2008 um, from the time we started flipping. But we're flipping at such a fast rate and not being subject to market fluctuations uh, that we're able to move the properties off our books before we were getting hit with the price uh, depreciation in the market. So as long as you have the right systems in place, uh, you can standardize your materials, you can expedite the fix-up and rehab process, you can move properties in a declining market for a profit. How quickly are you able to move them from the time you purchase them and, and take possession to the, to the time you can find a buyer? Well, our, our typical, typical rehab depends on, on, obviously, the condition of the property. We'll do anything from, from a simple paint job, carpet clean, all the way up to uh, putting in walls and flooring and cabinetry, the whole nine. Um, so, but on average, I would say we have about a two- to three-week rehab uh, on a house. 
and then we have an average days on market of 15 days. Um, so we're pricing these things aggressively to move. We're not getting greedy with the price, which is what I see a lot of people do. They try to stretch that dollar as much as possible, then turn, they're shooting themselves in the foot. So we have an average of two and a half weeks, six up to three weeks. We have uh, 15 days on the market, and then we have a typical 30-day close of escrow. So we're moving these things off the books anywhere seven to nine weeks. And you said you're pricing these things aggressively. If the, the fair market value is 100000 are are you trying to take a percentage off of that as a general rule to, to be aggressive? Well, I wouldn't say it that way because our products are at, at such a premium. On, on a $100,000 house, a buyer might not expect to find granite countertops in it or stainless steel appliances or travertine backsplash or some of the, the, the little things that we do that, to, to um, be a selling feature, I guess, uh, what I would say for a buyer to be really attracted to it compared to what else is on the market, which is typically a short sell or, or an REO that doesn't have these kind of extra uh, features and amenities that our houses have. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily we're trying to discount below the market value. Obviously, we try to maximize the return on, on what someone's willing to pay for it. And it's some of the little things that we do to our houses and some of the quality control that we have on our product and, and our, on our fix-up that sets us apart and we're able to sell it you know, obviously at a premium over an REO or a bank-owned house, but still with what an appraiser, you could justify to an appraiser that the, the value of that house is worth. And that's why they move so fast because of the condition of the property and they're, they're priced right to the market. On the sell, the final sell, do you have any challenges getting these appraisers to come up to the, the price that you want when they see that you just bought it a couple months earlier for such a low price? Sure, there, there's always obstacles, but uh, you know you make money in flipping when you buy, not when you sell. So as long as you're buying right and you you can justify the comps on what it should resell for when you buy, and you have your margin built in, obviously you can make a profit. Now, um, dealing with appraisers, obviously we, we we have a repair list, you know that details everything that we've done to the property to increase the value since the purchase. Um, we have comps. Uh, comparable properties that we share with the appraiser out there to help justify the price. But in the end, you know, if we're putting, you know, $20,000 worth of rehab in a property, if, if a normal Joe and Mary Smith homeowner went to go put those same upgrades that we put in, it would cost them $40,000 instead of 20000 So there's a lot of our margin just because of our cost positioning with our vendors and suppliers. We're able to get things at such a great cost that a normal homeowner cannot compete with since we're doing it on such a large scale, which is really an, a huge added uh, value to, to our business model. Do you try to purchase these properties at a certain percentage below where you think the final retail value will be? Is Do you use some kind of formula in your purchase and what properties would or would not qualify for you to, to make a bid at the trustee sale? Sure. I look at it as my my net return on investment, uh, and I want a minimum of 10%. So if I'm investing uh, $100,000, I have to make 10000 200 I have to make 20000 That's the way I look at it. And, you know, at the end of the day, what am I going to walk away with? And obviously there's certain properties, areas, uh, features to a house that I, I will not buy. 
And there are certain things I look for in a house that I, I will pay a premium for. Um, for example, I won't buy anything that backs up to a major road or a power line or a, a big commercial complex, anything that would really limit the number of buyers. I want to appeal to the mass. So I don't want to take that buyer pool and shrink it at all. I want it as, as large as possible. And th some of the things on, on the contrary that I do look for is single-story homes. Um, in the Arizona market, we've had a, a huge influx of Canadian buyers, and these are second-time home buyers um, that are looking for single-family homes, great room floor plans, are looking for communities that have some amenities like a swimming pool or hiking and biking trails, a golf course. So I'm really targeting out certain communities and certain floor plans and features of homes that would appeal to what I think the buyer would be. Um, and even in 2008, 2009, when FHA did not have the waiver for, uh, for um, home buyers, you had to have title season for 90 days, it didn't affect my business model at all because what I was buying was not appealing to the first-time home buyer. So I would be able to still resell all my properties to non-FHA buyers, being cash or conventional buyers, where I wouldn't get stuck with having to hold them for 90 days before I could resell them. So it's really targeting not only what you, you don't want to look for uh, that would hinder the amount of buyers to that property, but also what you would attract as a buyer to purchase that home. That's smart. You're looking at the end first. Exactly. It's reverse engineering it. Who's doing the work? Are you going out there and doing the work, or do you have somebody that's doing the work for you? Uh, I run about three crews that, that do all the work for me. Uh, typically, I'll own about uh, 13 to 17 homes at any given time. And that's, that's in the, the fix and flip process. You know, Four or five might be coming soon to the market where we're going through rehab on them. Uh, a couple might be on the market active. Then we'll have you know, seven or eight uh, pending waiting for a close of escrow. So I always try to keep a pipeline going for my contractors and my crew because you know, one of the reasons I'm able to command such great cost savings from my suppliers is the fact that they're not out there hunting for them the next job. I've already got it lined up for them. So it's really controlling that process and having the right crew in place because uh, you know, bottom line is they're the lifeblood of my business. If I didn't have them to do the work and didn't have the relationship with the same contractor for the past three years, it would make my job very, very much more challenging. Because um, I, I, you know, when I buy a house, these my contractor already knows exactly what needs to be done to it. I don't have to go to the house and, and handhold them through it and saying, oh, you know, the paint has to be this color. Everything in our business is standardized from we use the same flooring to the same fans to the same granite to the same fixtures, you name it. Everything is standardized. Do you purchase all of that product ahead of time or do you have it in a big warehouse or are you doing it as you go? That's a very good question. Uh, and, and I guess it's leading into one of my next businesses that we're looking at sourcing. Um, right now, we are one of Lowe's largest uh, vendor, or excuse me, purchasers here in, in the metro area, and we've been able to, with our volume, command significant price redu reductions over what a normal contractor or or uh, home buyer would would purchase at their stores. 
And that's mainly for fixtures, uh, fans and lighting and stuff like that. Now, we are able to buy our granite and warehouse it at a significant cost savings. Uh, when, a, uh, when a granite place in the local area was going out of business, we, you know, we would buy up 30 slabs and keep them in warehouse when we need to use it. Uh, and the next uh, step of our, of our business model is really to start sourcing some of this material from China and really start to really warehouse this and create a company that's just geared towards investors and buy and hold, um, buy and hold investors and fix and flip investors uh, because, you know what, they're just standardizing. They don't care. They don't need 40 different fans to choose from. They need two fans. They don't, you know, they, they don't need 40 different choices on granite. They need one granite at a great price. So uh, there's a lot of other interesting business models that can feed off of this, which is very, it's a very compelling reason why we're looking at doing some of the sourcing from China now. You talked about the investor early on. Would you mind telling us what, what type of arrangement did you have with the investor? He, he put up the money and you did the work. Do you split the profits? Do you, does he get paid back first? You know, what, what kind of arrangement did you structure that somebody else wanted to duplicate what you're doing? Well, this investor, I have a arrangement worked out where it's, it's, it's a 50-50 split on the profit. He puts up the money. I manage to buy, to sell, the project management, the rehab, the whole nine, and it's split 50-50. Now, since then, we have grown our business to accommodate other investors, other people that uh, private money that uh, is looking to get a, a better return than what they can get, you know, on the stock market and money markets out there, in which we can provide that. Some of the arrangements we've done with them is it is a 50-50 split with with our company. They put the money. Same thing. We uh, we do we manage the whole project from from buy to sell. They are not influencing our decision making whatsoever uh, because we have the track record proven. Um, that we know what we're doing and we have that credibility built up. So it's not a question of are you pricing that at 225 or 250, 215. It's, you know, this is what it is and this is what we're doing to the project, which I think is key for a lot of people. I know it would take a lot of credibility to get built up, but um, once you get a system in place and, and you have that track record, you can, you can kind of command that that respect from, from an investor. Now we have other investors that, uh, you know, want to do some of the project management themselves. So all we're doing is, is the buy and the resell for them. And that uh, you, can, you can split it, you know, however you want. You can take, a, you know, a, a quarter of the equity of the profitability or you can just command a higher, you know, you can get it either on the buy side, you can get a, a, a little spiff, or you can get it on the, the resale side, on the real estate commission, you can also make some money. So there's different ways to tweak the model depending on what the investor is looking for. When you're participating in these transactions, are, are you working for free on the commission side? Is that part of the big picture, or, or are you charging a fee when you sell these properties? When I sell the properties for my own company and for the other investors, we do not charge a real estate commission. It's a simple 3% to the buyer's agent that brings us the deal uh, on the buyer, and, and that's it. We, we split. I mean, we look at splitting the, the, the profitability um, straight down the middle from, from, you know, what it would cost uh, to what the rehab is to what the net return on investment is, and that's what we're, we're splitting 50-50. Are you buying these properties in one company, or do you have multiple companies 
for each of these investor arrangements? We buy, we invest, we buy and invest them into the investors' uh, company. Um, so you know, if it's ABC Realty or ABC Buyer, we we vest the, the title of the property into their name, and then we have a separate agreement worked out uh, with them through through you know, obviously through our lawyers at state. You know, we will be purchasing, investing the property in, in their entity. However, this is how the transaction works. If they decide not to uh, flip or resell the property, they're owed a commission to us, three uh, percent. So. Um, there's different ways we have to protect it, but the, the investor has to feel that their investment is secured in some fashion, and a deed of trust will do that. Who's on the deed? The investor is on the deed of tr- trust. Yeah, exactly. And we just have a, uh, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but an arrangement or agreement um, that um, that will say, you know, it's just a kind of a writer that we put on the property address, and, and they re-sign it that saying that, you know, this is the arrangement that we have on, on the fix-up and the, the rehab of the property that the profits will be split 50-50. Are you buying these investments with cash, or are they the investors getting financing for part of it? All, all of them are cash transactions. When you buy at the trustee sale, um, it, it's, it's 24 hours to have the cash available to close on, on the, the transaction. Of course, they're as is, and uh, typically they're occupied or or you don't know the status of it. That's why it's important to, you know, do as much due diligence as possible prior to bidding on the property. You know, you want to try to get eyes on the property. You want to try to check title, make sure you're not bidding on a, a second or there's not any uh, kind of uh, tax liens against the property that would really hinder your ability um, to sell it. So there's a, there is a due diligence phase that you, you have to have uh, some confidence to know um, how you can uh, eliminate as much risk as possible. But on, on, on the other side is you have to take risks to make money in this, this market. And I, I talk with a lot of real estate agents I want to do what I'm doing, and the biggest thing I find is they don't either want to put in the work or they're too scared of the risk to jump in and do it and just roll up the sleeves and get your hands dirty. And without those two things, you're not going to be successful in this niche market. I want to go back just for clarification. Maybe it's only me, but understanding how you're buying these properties with the investors, the deed is the ownership. The deed of trust is a lien against that ownership. So is the the ownership name, the deed going into the investor's name, and then your business is taking a deed of trust or a lien against the property? Is that how it's working? Well, that, that is one way to do it. Um, we have such a long-standing agreement with the, a lot of the investors that we have in place where we're not uh, putting in a second deed of trust on, on the property. We're just doing a first, and then we're, we just have a our, – our lawyer has drafted up a uh, uh, kind of like an operating agreement, I guess, of some sorts that they're agreeing um, to allow us to do the, the rehab on this property with the intent of reselling it for a profit. In the event they don't resell for a profit, they're owed us a 3% commission of, of the purchase price at trustee sale. So uh, it is a, a protection, but it's not as much protection as a second deed of trust would be on the property. And it's really, you know, how much trust do you want to put into who you're working with? What would happen if the project was a loser for some reason? Do you have something written about that, that if, if for some reason there's a loss on this transaction, 
Do you and the investor both eat that 50-50? No, that, that's, the, that's the actual risk that the investor is taking, um, is that, um, that they actually they're taking the loss. Um, with our track record, you know, we, we've only taken uh, three losses and, and, and that many properties, and they've been 3,000, 4,000, and one was 15,000. So uh, pretty good odds that we're not going to get a loss, but that's, that's the risk of doing this business, and that's the risk for them of making a, you know, 25 30% annualized return versus making 5% or 8% in, in their, with their financial advisor. What have we not talked about that you would, would like to get out there about your fix-and-flip business? Well, I, I think I mentioned it earlier that you can, you can do the fix-and-flip in, in a declining market, and there's, there's huge opportunity out there um, for this need in the marketplace. And, and, and what I like to try to, to talk to a lot of people, because people look at what we do as they're sharks, they're vultures, and in fact, you know, we're just the opposite. We're, we're the ones that are helping support and stabilize this market. We're the ones that are helping uh, push the values of neighborhoods up. So what if we bought it for 200 but we sell it at 275 That's increasing the, the value of the neighborhood overall, plus taking a property that's been neglected um, with weeds growing as tall as the roof um, and really putting that TLC back in the house and getting a buyer in there that is going to be a great homeowner for that community. So I think there, there needs to be a difference of perception from what a flipper was back in the boom where it was they didn't do any, anything to earn that, that, that equity or, you know, the market appreciating that is how they made the money. This is a true business that, that we run, and it's, it's actually doing good to the community as a whole. Have you gotten to the point where you're acting on your own account and you're buying and selling properties in your own name without investors? No, I have allegiance to my business partner that, that initially loaned me the funds to get started. And since then, he's secured um, lines of credit and, and other sources of getting cheap capital um, to be able to grow our business to, to what it is today. So my loyalty is with him and I uh, would not think about venturing off and just doing something um, by myself without, without his approval. Because, you know, face it, without, uh, without his capital, I could have never got started. And, and for him, without the, my, my knowledge and expertise and, and running the business, he could have made the returns that he has made. So it's a good win-win relationship that we have that I think is mutually beneficial on both sides. Are you building any wealth through buy and hold? Are you buying and holding any of these properties? Well, that's the next uh, business uh, venture that we're getting in, in in our company. In fact, um, I met with a local community bank about a buy and, buy and hold strategy. Um, our, and it's important the way we looked at starting this business, us being my partner and I. Um, we looked at it saying we want to keep all retained earnings in this company. We're not going to soak this company dry of all the assets, and and so what we've done is you know just used uh, you know whatever tax money we would need, and we've lived off other sources of revenue that we've been able to generate outside of the fix and flip model, and uh, so by doing that we've got a, quite a bit of retained earnings in the company, and and quite a, a great track record now of two plus years of tax returns, 
uh, that we have now approached banks and saying, okay, now what can we do or what can you do from, for us to leverage what we have built? Because, you know, that's what's key in this market is, is proper leverage. And with the buy and hold strategy that, you know, we're looking at uh, getting about $1.5 million worth of financing, which would probably take us up to doing 15, 16, 17 homes or so, um, at an interest rate of 4.1% on a five-year fixed uh, with uh, no prepayment or um, penalties. I mean, just a great way to leverage what we've built uh, now into a buy-and-hold strategy. And with that, with that kind of proper leverage at that interest rate, um, we, can, we can get an annualized return of 16 to 20% which is just great, and that's not even factoring appreciation in this market. You know, if, if inflation really is going to set in, these houses, you know, come back at all, which they should, you know, um, you know, we're going to be sitting pretty in, in five to seven to ten years on a buy-and-hold strategy. And so is that your long-term plan, with a, enough said, is to move into the uh, long-term hold as well as are you going to be doing flips at the same time and long-term or both or one or the other? We're going to be doing both, and that's one of the arrangements with the local community bank that we've arranged. You know, they can't securely um, collateralize our fix and flip homes because we move them so fast off the books. They, it wouldn't make sense from an admin standpoint to secure those properties for the bank. So the way around that is work out a great deal on a buy-and-hold strategy with us. Maybe we don't get the line of credit we wanted for the fix-and-flip model, um, but we're able to diversify towards a long-term buy-and-hold strategy that's going to still have great returns for us. So that's just one of the things we're looking at. And I think I mentioned the, the more the sourcing uh, materials from China and some of the things we can do. We've also looked at... Uh, potentially bundling homes into a company and reselling them. You know, a lot of these investors or big funds are, are not looking for one house or two houses, and a lot of our buyers uh, we're, we're getting are from Canada. So why not bundle, you know, 10, 15 homes into an LLP and uh, have a turnkey property management in place uh, for a investor in Canada or somewhere else in the United States. So it's just one way of leveraging what we do and our capacity to generate other business revenue streams. Wow, you're really thinking outside the box. Yeah, you have to. I mean, I mean, a successful business just doesn't have one stream of revenue. And, and we know, you know, the fix and flip strategy might not be around forever, but we got to make hay while the sun's shining and make as much money and return on the fix-and-flip strategy as possible while also looking towards the future of what the market's going to be like. It's the same reason we got into this fix-and-flip market because of the need and predicting that there would be a huge need for it. It's the same way we're going to diversify into other segments is knowing that this market will change and we're going to be in front of that change. How are you locating or finding these investors, you've started to branch out from your original partner. Are you actively looking for investors? We are, you know, we are actually actually looking for investors, and a lot of it has come 
by word of mouth uh, with our real estate brokers that we now have in place. We've been able to attract real estate agents that are more geared towards the investment side of, of the business, which has brought us in um, some new investors. Um, when I started this back in 2008, I was able to generate a lot of leads uh, from investors, and some of the investors that are working with us today came from this, is I would do case studies on the fix and flip properties. I'd buy a house, a trustee sale, I'd have the video camera going that day when I went out to it to get the locksmith to change the locks. Day five, I would go through the rehab of the project. Day 10, it would be an update. Day 15, it's, you know, it's, it's ready for the market. It's staged. It's uh, it's market ready. Day you know day twenty. It's it's under contract. So I'd walk through these videos and do a case history of the project. Then I'd post them on YouTube and other social media sites, and the phone started ringing, off the hook. Um, I don't do that as much anymore, just because of my the value of my time. But it was a great way to get started, a uh, low cost way of getting started and getting the phone to ring with investors. Wow. I, I'm sure there's a lot more I should be asking you about this uh, project and this company. But I think at this point, what I'm going to do is switch gears and talk about your more traditional brokerage, Show Appeal Realty, and start to go into that side of, the, of your business. So you've said you're down in Arizona. You've described your market. Could you tell me what niche, if any, you have for Show Appeal Realty? What's the focus of Show Appeal Realty? Well, the focus of Show Appeal Realty is to leverage the, the power of technology in everything we do from, from an admin brokerage standpoint, behind the scenes with the way we do commission disbursements to um, our systems on how to turn in a, a, a new sale or a new listing. Um, that's one of the behind the scenes uh, technology things where we try to be different than a, a typical old school brokerage that is heavy and reliant on paper with our um, we've developed different systems for um, lead follow-up, a, a CRM that once you submit an online form, it'll follow up with that client for five to ten years down the road, and, and it's, you just kick back and relax knowing that the brokerage is taking care of, of your lead follow-up or uh, after-the-sale follow-up with these clients. Um, what we've looked at from a lead generation standpoint on the brokerage is how do we get in front of where buyers are looking for properties or looking to potentially find an agent to sell a property? Of course, they're going online now. I mean, the, today's buyers are much different than buyers in the past. So we want to be the for, at the forefront of their search. And the way I, I look at it is instead of saying, I want to be the number one on Google for Arizona real estate or Phoenix real estate, I don't want that. I want to be number one on Google for the address 123 Main Street or MLS number 578214. That singular property, that's what I want to find a buyer for. I don't want to have to take the buyer through the, the whole funnel of trying to narrow down where they want to live. I want the, the person that I already figured out they wanted 123 Main Street, and they're coming to me because they're Googling that address. So that's the way we looked at the concept, kind of like we mentioned earlier about reverse engineering things a little bit, is let's start with the address, the physical property, and build our online SEO strategy to target buyers who are looking for that house. And so that's what we've done online is generate 
all these websites where we're ranking extremely well for uh, an MLS number or a property address. And then we said, okay, let's peel back that onion, right? We started at the core of that onion. Let's peel back a layer and say, okay, well, the next step is the community or the zip code or the city or town. You know, just peel that back and look for how do we attract people that are more targeted with exactly where they want to live. It's a much easier referral and lead that we're we're getting out to agents in our brokerage, and uh, and they're further along in the decision making process. And we've also done some other marketing steps to really set our brokerage apart, not only from from the buyer's perspective, but we want to position ourselves to be geared towards sellers down the road when the market turns from less distressed sellers to more of your typical seller that has equity, um, where we've really spent a lot of time on the staging concept that we have an in-house staging division in our brokerage. Um, We've set up 180 community websites. So if I live in um, a community called Power Ranch, that if I went to Power Ranch Realtor in Gilbert, Arizona, I'm going to find our website, and I'm going to know that our brokerage services that community. And that's the same way we've incorporated incorporated it from a social media standpoint of, you know, how are we having Facebook fan pages on these communities in these areas, and how are we engaging the people that live in these areas, and how can we really – tie in the whole online social media strategy into our real estate brokerage. I think that is is a few examples of how our brokerage is kind of different from another brokerage in this marketplace. you got a lot going on there. Let's try to break out some of those parts. The name of your company, Showpill Realty, it sounds like a staging company or has something to do with staging, so let's start there. You said you have an in-house stager. Do you have one person, a group of people, how many people are doing staging? Well, we, we actually have one person now that handles most of our staging and our brokerage. Um, and it, you're right, our name was kind of derived from staging concept because, you know, we heavily believe in it in our investment strategy because we it's fundamentally been proven to, to work uh, because real estate is an emotional process and it really pulls to the um, emotion of the home buyer and creates that connection of this is this could be my home, which is you know how we want them to feel and say they're walking into someone else's house. Um, so we, we it's proven to work in our in our business model. So we want to make that a bigger focus on the brokerage side. And so what we looked at it as in the name of well you have curb appeal that describes the outside of the home. Well something that has show appeal means it's going to show well or present well. So we just want to have that mindset of how we believe every client that's looking to sell their home should have it staged and properly ready for the market. And we should have um, a go-to consultant in our real estate brokerage that can be a a staging specialist and could be that party that says, you know, you need to do this to your property to get the, the best value or the best showing ability for it. Do you stage every listing that you have? Every listing on the investment side, yes. Okay. And for your agents in the brokerage, every time they get a listing, does your company provide staging services? Exactly. And unfortunately, right now, most of the sales that we have in our brokerage are 
uh, distress distress cells, meaning um, short cells, which, uh, you know, there's not as much time and effort, I guess, spent in the staging aspect of that. That's more of a, a price point thing than a, than a, than a staging thing. So um, a lot of our agents that are working with investors use it. And when the market turns around where there is more of a uh, more, I guess, need for it from a traditional uh, seller standpoint, I, I think we're going to be positioned for that change. And that's the, the whole thing. It might not be as prevalent now, but down the road, will it be? Yes. Do you charge an additional fee for staging, or, or is it part of your overall package that you offer to a seller? We, we do charge an additional fee for the staging, um, and it can, it can vary from you know, what needs to be done to the property to how much of the sweat and equity does the homeowner want to put into it by getting their, market, their house market ready. Um, typically, it'll range from around oh seven hundred bucks to fifteen hundred dollars. Um, again, depending on you know, is it just kind of a redesign of their current uh, furniture, or is it bringing in some of the accessories and pictures and plants that on to a vacant home that will get it market ready. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Is that entire fee going to your stager, or are you splitting that with them? That that, That fee goes to our stager. And then we're able to take a percentage of that for the brokerage. When you stage the properties, are you just working with the items that are already in the property? Or are you also bringing in items uh, such as furnishings and couches and tables and other things? Well, we believe in the the light staging. I think some stages will call it the vignette staging, where it's just uh, accessories. It's not big furniture. And we actually started off doing the big furniture, the coffee tables, the couches, the dining room sets. And we found that was not any more profitable than doing the light staging of just some pictures, some plants, some bathroom stuff. Um, so to answer your question, we, we've gone away from the, 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 the full-out staging to a more of a light staging um, just because of, of, of the number one cost and return on investment. And number two, it depends on the house. Does it need pictures and, and accessories, or does it just need to be decluttered and cleaned up and someone to consult on you know, what needs to be done to the property to get it ready for market? Let's talk uh, about more about that lead generation and, and break some of that out. That was pretty interesting how you're trying to break down your search parameters on Google and so forth into very small little niches. How are you achieving that? If you, you talked about a MLS number or an address, how are you getting the search engines to come find you for that? Well, what we're doing is essentially creating our website into an MLS system with every single property indexed on our site. And a lot of agents, it gets kind of technical, but they have it the, the search um, function on their websites framed in, right? So it's not really on their server. Um, the page is not being indexed 
because there's no HTML by Google robots. What we're doing is, is essentially creating a huge database and, and optimizing each page for the address and MLS number. And there's companies out there that provide um, this kind of, of, of service. Um, one of the companies that we use is Diverse Solutions, and they have a very good ID exchange uh, function for WordPress blogs, which um, which is you know I think it's thirty dollars a month, and it's worth its weight in gold. That uh, software it brings in properties through the IDX and then posts them on their own individual page. Yeah, essentially, it's uh, you know, you, know, you can almost think of it as an RSS to HTML. I mean, it, what it, what essentially it does is say instead of framing this in. We're going to create a optimized web page for that property that has all the HTML, the good stuff that Google really wants to grab, all the title uh, meta tags that Google wants to see that are geared towards that address or that MLS number, and how they can. And then essentially, uh, if you're doing the right kind of link linking and um, guest blogging, some other strategies and articles to really get your, your website ranking well to various pages, you know, Google's going to start indexing a lot of these single property uh, pages on your website. And instead of being indexed, you know, you have two or 300 pages on your website, you're going to have 20,000, 30,000 pages indexed. So when someone puts in 123 Main Street, they're going to that property and that address where they can view pictures, they can read a description, they can schedule a showing and make the phone ring for you. Are you doing this just for your own company listings, or are you also using listings out of the MLS? We're using the whole MLS. Uh, our MLS has a listing feed, a data exchange where brokerages can use it. Um, and and we, we, uh, a lot of brokerages don't understand why their listings are showing up on our, on our website. But they they fail to realize that data exchange uh, policies that that they agreed to with the MLS that allows us to syndicate this data, and uh, you know it's 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 really enhancing what is out there available to you and leveraging it to generate business. Because look, we we have the same intellectual capital and that forethought to actually make it happen. A lot of these brokerages can do the same thing we can do as far as they have access to the, the data exchange just as we do. However, we know how to use it and leverage that data to optimize it for the search engines to maximize the results and leads into our brokerage. Let's talk about one of those pages. 123 Elm Street is there. How are you converting that web page into a lead? Does the person have to call you? Do they fill, type in a form if they want additional information? Do they email you? How do you get them from that page into your system? Sure, they, they have multiple avenues to do that. Uh, one, they can schedule a showing uh, via an online form where they say, you know, I want to see 123 Elm Street on uh, July the 2nd um, at this time. Uh, they can pick up the phone and, and call us. Uh, we, you know, we have a header um, that has obviously our phone numbers all over our website, and we have the call to actions too. I mean, you got to have call to actions to um, to get people to pick up the phone to call. 
I mean, we have the mortgage calculators that they can see. We have the Zestimates from Zillow on there. So we have all this data that we're providing um, a potential buyer, but it's also not only can you provide them the information that they're looking for, but how do you make them fill out that form or pick up that that phone and, and dial your number. And so we've done different call to actions on our websites to really, you know, maximize um, maximize the potential for for people to call and inquire on the property. For clarification, for some of our listeners that may not know what you're talking about, the call to action. What do you mean by that? Is it a phrase that you're using, a statement? Uh, what do you mean by call to action? Well, a call to action can be very simple. It can be, you know, schedule a showing, schedule to go view this home today, or um, find out how low the mortgage payment would be on this property so they fill out a form. Anything that would really call call to them to act upon, um, to get them to uh, feel confident enough to release their contact information for you in order for you to make a sale. Because that's one of the great things, you know, about the web is, is you're, you're anonymous. I mean, you can search and you don't have to fill out a, a thing, which is key to what we do is providing them knowledge, you know. Uh, but if you're not captivating that and capturing that buyer, that lead, by having these call to actions, they're just one click away to going to someone else's website. So you're trying to entice them. That's the call to action. That is the call to action. And I assume there's an exchange. They'll they'll give you their information, and you're going to give them something. Exactly. Whether it's, uh, you know, we're going to show them the property to provide more photos or, you know, tell them how, how much their mortgage payment would be. There's something that... For them to provide their information, we're going to give them something in return. Well, you have this large system set up now, this this shadow MLS, so to speak. How how is that working? How many website hits or or leads are you generating? What kind of metric can you give me that that's happening per day or week or month? Well, I, I would say the best metric is we get about thirty thousand unique visits a month um, to our websites, and uh, keep in mind we're a fairly new brokerage. I mean, we're, we're pretty much only been operating for a year and a half now, um, not even actually. Um, so a lot of our re- websites are relatively still young, and uh, with getting indexed and up at the top of the search engines, you really need a, a pretty big history uh, to really start moving up. So uh, our, our trending of our statistics are, are definitely on, on the increase as far as the number of, of unique visitors. And I would say on a given day, we get probably anywhere from uh, 8 to 13 solid leads, meaning they, they want to see this property, not, not a lead like, in, you know, I'm interested in Arizona real estate, no, a lead as in I want to go see 123 Elm Street. So I'd say anywhere from 8 to 13 of those a day. Okay, now I understand what, what you were talking about with your, your quote, SEO strategy. You're, you're basically trying to get into these search engines on this, this individual level and amplify that, not by having more people go to that individual page, but just by having a bajillion pages. Did you say you had 20,000 pages? Yeah, on some of our, one of our main sites is indexed 20,000 pages deep. Um, 
And one of the important things on, on a, a strategy is, well, 123 Elm Street might have just sold um, recently, and, it, you know, for that page to be taken off Google will take some time. You know, it'll be a, uh, you know, it'll be a broken link of a page. But what we've done is a redirect saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, 123 Main or Elm Street might be off the market, but here's some other similar properties that you might find interesting. So we found through looking at our analytics um, from our websites is a lot of the pages that people search for might already be sold. But Google hasn't, you know, unindexed that page from our website, so people are still hitting that page. So why not actually provide them with alternatives to what they're looking for to try to capture that sale? It's kind of like Amazon when you buy a book and they ask you if you want another book with it. Exactly. What what else uh, might complement or, or uh, fit the needs of that, that parameter of what you're looking for exactly? Let's talk about these leads. You're bringing them, these leads in. How are you capturing them? Are they going into some kind of central database, or do they just get handed out to your agents? What happens once that lead comes in? Well, exactly. They're sourced out to our agents, and basically they're sourced out based on the area that the agent lives in throughout the Phoenix metro area because the the metro area is large, and it makes no sense to give someone a lead that lives on the east side of the valley uh, a lead for a buyer looking to buy on the west side. So we, we go by territories pretty much in the brokerage, and then we go, uh, and, and and maybe a lot of agents don't like to hear this, but we give the majority of the leads to our best salespeople. Why is that? <laughs> it costs money to get at the, the top of the search engines. I mean, it costs a lot of development time and resources to make this happen. And if we're giving it to salespeople that can't convert, we're just flushing money down the toilet. So we, we source our leads to a sales group within our company, the people that are dedicated to working these leads and have the track record that they're not going to spill these leads and they're going to do their due diligence and follow up to this client. Uh, because it's based on results, and uh, we want our best agents working these leads, so we're getting our referral fee off of them from the time and effort that we put into developing the leads. And and that goes to show is you know this should be a supplemental thing to to our agents' business. This shouldn't be the the the, the core of what they do is handling our leads. This is something that that is icing on top of the cake, the gravy on the mashed potatoes. This is this is us saying we're in the trenches with you guys on generating leads, and, and, and we want to show you something that we believe is a proven way for lead generation. And if you want to do, to do this and implement this strategy in your business, here's what we did. Here's the book of how we did it and why we did it. Go do it if you want to. And I can see it from your side, wanting to make sure that these leads convert. How do people make it into your exclusive club where they'll get these leads? How do you know who's the best person in the company or the best group of people in the company? Do they, they, what kind of track record do they have to have? How, how would a new person in your company prove themselves to get, so they could get some leads? Well, first off, what we do is we look at broker metrics, which is a soft one, software for brokerages where you can see what other agents 
uh, are performing. You know, their their statistics, the analytics on how many uh, closings they've had, how many of those closings were buyer side, seller side, what price point, etc. What area of the uh, metropolitan area was themselves in? So we really know if uh, Jeff, for example, um, works on the the west side of the Phoenix area, that he that he closed, according to Broker Metrics, eight buyer side leads over there last year. Well, you know, Jeff might be really good and, and maybe a, a, a potential candidate for who we bring on board to our brokerage based on him working that that west side of the valley area and all, and working with buyers because he has that, that history uh, of doing so. And so if you're a new agent, what we have is a, a sales program in our brokerage where we try to get together once every two months and go through different sales techniques on how you be, can become a buyer's agent and work these leads more effectively. So you just talked about recruitment of agents from outside the company, you can monitor what they're doing with this this broker metrics program through the MLS. Is that correct? It's not actually through the MLS. It's uh, it's, it's farmed out to another company. Um, and if you Google broker metrics, you can come up with the company's name. I just don't don't have it on the top of my head here. But essentially, yeah, they what they do is they feed off the MLS data and they. Uh, they take this data into different reports that you can run. Let's get back to the leads coming in. You're going to give these out to some of the agents in the office. Do you just hand the lead to them and hope that they're going to track the, these leads and this information uh, in the future? Or do you have some kind of centralized database that you're managing and, and maintaining these leads? Yes, uh, we, we do have a CRM, a Customer Relationship Management Software that we, we do plug these leads into, um, that once, once we get the lead, it feeds into an online form that essentially goes into an a, um, email marketing campaign. And based on the criteria that that lead came in, say they were looking in the city of Phoenix, Arizona, well, the information that would be on a drip email system is based off the Phoenix area um, and, and what they might be looking for as a buyer, so they might have, here's what a sample real estate contract looks like. Here are the steps of the home buying process. You know, have you got pre-qualified for a, a loan, and this is what lenders look for. So it's all those kind of email marketing pieces that are geared towards the data that we receive from the initial inquiry that we're able to put into a email marketing system and have it automated. So we're doing follow-up on the agent's behalf, so they're getting hit with useful, good content from us as, as a real estate brokerage and also getting the kind of service and attention from the real estate agent because, you know, we, we want to make sure that that buyer that's looking to buy in Phoenix has, has read the buyer's advisory or has been given the link to look for the criminal activity in that neighborhood or that area, which we can't we can't steer them towards, but we can provide the data for them to look at on their on their own. So it's one way of you know covering our liability, and also another way of providing good information and subsidizing the lead follow up that our agents do. And at the same time, then the agent is, I assume, making phone calls that would complement these emails. Exactly, 
Exactly, because they know by the time they get the lead, it's X number of days before they get this email marketing piece and X number of days before they get the next. So, you know, a typical lead follow-up question can be, you know, did you get that email about, you know, that had the residential purchase contract? I mean, this is what you would have to sign if you're purchasing a home. Did you have any questions on it? You know, typical questions where it's an easy lead follow-up because, you know, it was an email that was automated to them. How often are you sending emails out to these leads? We try to hit them every four days in a three-month period because the way we we have, you know, developed our online system trying to get people at the more towards the end of the purchasing and decision-making process, we want to try to really cram that information in in a three-month period. So we figured if we're doing our, our building online right by targeting the people more in the end of the decision-making process, they should be three months out from the time they, they inquire to us. And that's where we really want to target them um, and try to get that sale. This uh, CRM that you're using, is it a proprietary system or do you know, is it something somebody could purchase off the shelf? Sure. No, it, you know, I, it's really hard to develop any proprietary information nowadays with the, the rate of technology changing. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies make the mis- this mistake of, uh, we're just going to do it ourselves. And then, you know, by the, you know, two years later, by the time they get it implemented, it's already way outdated. So we use, um, we use a couple different systems that have APIs uh, that feed into each other. For example, we use Wufu. That's W-U-F-O-O.com. Wufu is an online form filling out uh, where you can um, upload forms, contracts, data to, and that feeds into MailChimp, which is our, our drip email campaign system, which is really able to segment uh, this data out into different targeted emails. You know, for example, if on the Wufu form they filled out that, they were interested in, they're a buyer and interested in Phoenix. Well, it's going to go into a certain MailChimp email campaign that's geared towards that Phoenix and being a buyer. So um, those are the type of systems that we use that communicate with each other that accomplish the goal we want to without being a redundant data entry um, type of process. It's a, it's a one entry and it's segmented to where it needs to go. It's cost-effective. I mean, I think Wufu is, you know, it can be anywhere from $10 to $30 a month, and, and MailChimp uh, is probably about the same. So it's a very cost-effective cost solution out there um, because they have APIs that communicate with one another. What's API? Technically, that what, what essentially it means is that the applications are, are compatible. They're releasing, um, they're, they're, they're more open source to development which means if I develop this whole system and I release my, an API for it, well, other people can take that API and, and, and use it to enhance their system or tie into their system. So it's almost like an open source code for communication uh, of different online applications. It almost gets into the cloud computing and, and using uh, different programs that will, will kind of fit hand-in-hand with each other. And, and open it up to more development. So it's a communication method for each of these programs to talk to one another. Exactly. You mentioned that your agents need to make phone calls to follow up with these leads. 
Do you have that put on a schedule? Do they have to make a call every X number of days? You mentioned four days on the email. Do the calls have to happen every once in a while? We we have not um, we have not we've been a little bit I guess more liberal with how we regulate um, the lead follow up from our agents on how many you know we don't have certain guidelines they have to email them this many times or they have to make this many phone phone calls uh, it's something that we've been looking into potentially doing uh, to standardize the process maybe a little bit more and have more of a, a structure. Um, but at, at this point, we have not implemented that, but it's something I've definitely been considering doing. Um, but, again, it, it goes to, you know, we're able to follow these leads through our brokerage, and we know how many leads have been given to how many agents, to which agents, and how many leads have they closed. So we have the metrics inside our company where we're no, we know if we gave Joe, you know, 30 leads last month and, you know, he doesn't have any in escrow, then there might be an issue there that we need to have a conversation with. But it's something that we're looking at but have not implemented at this point. When your agents are working with buyers, uh, do you require them to use a buyer agency agreement? No, that's actually been uh, – it's, it's highly recommended but not enforced. Um, it's highly recommended, and most of our buyer's agents that are on our sales team f- for working these leads uh, do use it. Um, and you'll find that most of the time the good agents do use it because, you know, once you get over the fear of saying, you know, this is just, you know, this has to be signed, it just becomes a standard part of your business, and it's it's just commonplace. Um, and most of the good agents do use that buyer broker, broker employment agreement. Once your agent puts a, a buyer under contract, puts a contract together, does your company step in and help them to close that out with some kind of transaction management, or does the agent track it to close themselves? Most of the agents uh, nowadays track it to close themselves. We do have a, a um, licensed agent that does transaction management that, will, that can, for a fee, um, you know, help them out in the paperwork and the process of handling that. Um, but it's not mandatory for agents. It's, uh, it's there for the agents if they want to pay this other uh, agent to to handle that that management, um, you know it's kind of their call based on their workload. Have you created any technology infrastructure for these agents to to track that contract to close? No, we we haven't. Um, you know what we have done is more of the after it closes. You know, follow up with our our CRM system where. You know, it'll have the anniversary date of when it closed. So, you know, whether it's, you know, 2014, well, Joe and Mary Smith uh, is going to get an email from us on the the exact date of their anniversary of their house purchase. So we do have systems like that in place for after the sale. We don't have anything at this point in place for during the sale. And and being on, on some of the, I guess, the other side of companies that do have it, I don't know how effective it really is. Um, I guess maybe more in today's market with the short sales and, and some of the bank-owned stuff that's going on, it would probably be more relevant than a traditional sale. I mean, if you, if you don't know, you, you need to get a, a, the property disclosure out in 10 days or, you, you know, or you know, the insurance clue report back in five days from the sales contract. I mean, you really haven't done enough real estate deals to, to 
to know what's going on. So it's something that uh, it's interesting you bring that up that I think we should look at a little bit more. But um, it goes back to trying to create something proprietary out there that could change in the future and, and just could be a lot of time and money spent on uh, waiting for something else or some other leader to develop it and then uh, implement it ourselves. Brandon, you, you have a lot of balls in the air. You're doing a lot of different things. You must have some type of time management system. How do you keep control of your time? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I work a lot of hours. <laughs> uh, work a lot of hours. Um, everything is synced um, as far as calendar-wise with my wife, um, my broker, my partner, uh, my um, operating officer, and, and, and my fix-and-flip company. So um, we're sharing of calendars. So, you know, they know that, at, you know, at 3 o'clock on, on Monday, uh, you know, I'm spending time with my wife and son. Um, and they know if they need to schedule something for me, they can look and see that I have Wednesday afternoon open at 2 o'clock. So it, it's really, you know, sharing some of this, some of the, on, you know, using some of the online calendars and, and sharing it with, uh, with who I do business with. That's really helped me manage my time effectively. And it also goes back to taking on the business that I can handle um, and looking at what what is my greatest return on my time because that's what it comes down to. How can I make the most amount of money from a business perspective with the time I have given in a day? And and that's why a lot of my focus has been on the investment side because you know that's where the real money is being generated. I mean, the brokerage is a great thing. It's a great um, umbrella for the investment model, but it's that. It's an umbrella. It's the investment engine that drives everything. It's driving the transaction, and it's, it's where the profitability is, and that's where the majority of my time is spent because I know if I'm worrying about some of the little things in the brokerage, I'm missing out on the real revenue creation. You mentioned an online calendar is there a program that you're using? Yeah, we use uh, Google for, for a lot of our stuff, from our, from our email systems to our online calendars to our uh, online docu- documents, Google Docs, um, to our, our, our company intranet where we can share um, you know, disclosure statements and different things that agents might need if they need a book. You know, we have a video recording studio at the office. If an agent needs a scheduled time to use that studio, they can go on our intranet, which is powered by Google, and they can just reserve a, a time on the calendar for that. Um, so we we use Google a lot, and, and you can't beat the price of free for, for a lot of Google stuff. You mentioned you work a lot of hours in the week. How many hours do you work in a typical week? I'd say I probably now put in... Oh, 60 to 70 hours a week, and that's probably down from from 80 back in 2009, 2000, early 2010. I was probably putting in 80 hours a week. Um, so I'm putting in a lot of time and effort. I mean, when you're running an investment strategy and you're trying to find a deal that could potentially net you, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars, it's hard to take a night off of really scrubbing the auction list or really putting in. Um, the amount of time necessary to find the deal, because if you take a night off, that could be a $50,000 night you just took off. Do you try to take off a certain day during the week, or do you just work seven days a week? No, I take off weekends. 
so I, I really crush it pretty hard during the week. You know, I'll work, um, you know, from, let's say, you know, 7 in the morning to to 5 o'clock, take off between 5 and 7 with the family and dinner and stuff, and then do a 7 to 10 to 11 maybe, and, um, you know, repeat. And some weekends I do work, of course, but I try to at least have one day I'm fully off. And then, um, you know, on Sunday, obviously, I have to work at night on Sunday night. But um, for the most part, my, my weekends are pretty flexible. They spend that time with your wife and child. Exactly. I mean, you've got to have some work-life balance. And, uh, you know, it's not to say if I, you know, I don't want to go golfing, I don't make time to go golfing, or if I don't want to take, uh, take my wife and kid on a walk in the morning or, or, or go do whatever with them, I, I don't have that flexibility to do it. I mean, that's... I mean, that to me is is more important than the money being made. I mean, the money's great, but it's the freedom. It's the freedom that should get everyone excited about this business because the money, it allows for that freedom to, to go do those kind of things. And, uh, you know, like I said, you've got to make, make the hay while, while the sun's shining. And, you know, if I put in the the time and effort and I practice delayed gratification of what I'm sowing here, you know, life will be a lot easier down the road. Let's talk about business plan for a minute. Do you have a business plan? Of course. How often do you look at that business plan? Well, I have a business plan for the investment company as well as the real estate brokerage. Um, we have corporate meetings with our, with our admin staff uh, once a month where we'll go through and we'll look at the business plan and see if anything needs to be tweaked. And we'll outline where we need to be going. I mean, it's, it's looking at, you know, finance, operations, strategy and development, and marketing. I mean, that's what we really need to focus on, of, you know, what we're doing in those core areas. Because if you're, you know, you've got a plan for success. It just, you, you just don't wake up and it just happens. You, you've got to have a game plan to, to, to see it through. And without having a business plan, I, I find it hard to help people can be really successful. You say you make revisions on it monthly. Do you have one large session that you do once a year or uh, once every six months? Uh, or is it just that you keep modifying it a little bit as you go? Yeah, we keep modifying our business plan as we go. Because, you know, there's one thing constant in, in this business is change. I mean, and you've got to be constantly tweaking where you're going and, and what opportunities are available. Um, so yeah, it's a constant tweak. I mean, we just don't wait and say it's, uh, it's January 1st. It's, uh, you know, it's a new year. We got the, you know, we got a plan. It, it doesn't happen that day. It's not a, January 1st is not a reset day. Like everyone thinks it is. It's just another day. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably working that day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> If I'm not working, it could be a $50,000 day. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a $50,000 day. Let's talk about motivation, goals, and your mental game. What drives you? What drives Brandon? That's a good question. Um, For sure, my family. I mean, creating a better life for my family is, I think, what what everyone strives for. Um, And having that that freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it, that's what drives me. And uh, money is just, uh, money's just uh, I guess, the byproduct of, of enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'll be, I, I would admit I love what I do. I mean, it is, it is so much fun 
to find out, find these houses, uh, search them out, uh, rehab them, help the community uh, build build stabilization in, in the market, and, and make some money in return. I mean, and also I look at, you know, how many people am I helping employ out there? You know, how many contractors have a job because of what I'm doing? Um, you know, how many products and materials am I buying buying that's helping put food on someone's table? I mean, so, the, you know, money is just a byproduct of doing what you love and doing it well and having a game plan. So what motivates me is 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 my family and having a better life and an easier life for me down the road and just enjoying every day what I do. Did you say that you have or have not uh, purchased uh, some properties for, for long-term hold, uh, your personal wealth? Yes, I have one um, buy-and-hold project that I have purchased. It was a 24-unit apartment complex. I bought it, uh, I believe it was May of 2010, um, Right at that time, uh, a lot of prices that trustees sell were getting getting out of out of control as far as a lot of influx of buyers, you know, or investors, excuse me, knowing what margins were being made, and, and that was right before the tax credit ended. And you know, I kind of wanted to decelerate on on the gas pedal and saying, you know, man, I, you know, after this this tax credit goes away, we're just bumping buyers up in, in their their decision making process to get this tax credit. After that goes away, you know, I don't want to be stuck holding a bunch of inventory uh, um, when there's not a demand for it. So I really backed up uh, on the the flipping part of the business and said, oh, well, it's time to do a long-term hold project. And an apartment complex came up at trustee sale, 24 unit, and I bought it for 20, 20 a door. So 20000 a door, I bought it for 480 and I put 160000 in it. And right now uh, we have it over 90% occupied. Uh, we're doing cash out financing on it, so I'm going to get a half a million dollars out of it, um, and only be stuck with probably a hundred and you know thirty or forty thousand dollars of equity I have in it. And it has, you know, it's it's a great investment. It's probably valued at you know eight hundred to eight hundred fifty thousand right now. So you know it's a pretty good um, long term hold. And it's a great uh, retirement strategy for me. That's great, and it's positive cash flowing each month. Oh, it's uh, it's ripping out cash flow very nicely. Are you trying to focus on the future? Are you investing in retirement plans, IRAs, SEPs? Uh, are you doing anything along those lines? Oh, of course, uh, SEP IRA is, is big for me. Um, you know, obviously, you don't like working. Unfortunately, one of the things about the fix and flip business is it's treated as short-term income, ordinary income. So I'm getting hit pretty hard tax-wise. There's no long-term capital gains uh, that, I can, that I can get from doing what I do. So, you know, about half the year I'm working for the government. <laughs> so I've got to take advantage of some, some tax shelters out there, and a SEP IRA is, is one of those things that, I, that I'm doing to, uh, I think you can max it out about $49,000 annually, and uh, and tax savings. So um, that's the big one that that I do. Um, and again, getting into more of the buy and hold strategy is is going to be a way to kind of hedge that um, of buying buying properties and and treating them as long term investments and and you know doing exchanges or or cashing out in five to seven years with them. So, um, but the main thing for me, what I've incorporated right now, is the SEP IRA.
And have you thought at all about using any of those funds in a self-directed IRA to buy more real estate? Yeah, I have. Um, however, I, I do want to diversify my portfolio a lot. You know, I'm gonna, I, you know, have the apartment complex right now. Um, I have, you know, a long-term buy-and-hold strategy. I'm getting ready to implement with 15 to 18 homes based on the commitment I have from from a local community bank. So there's almost only so much diversification, or so, only so many eggs I can put in that real estate basket, which I believe I want to. You know, put a lot in that basket right now because the way I believe prices are, the way cash flow is right now, the way inflation um, looks like it might be on the horizon. I mean, so there's a lot of eggs in that that real estate basket. But as far as my SEP IRA, I, I'm thinking it's going to behoove me to keep that in um, more stocks and 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 keep that out of real estate. If you were to advise a brand new agent in the business. What would you tell them to do first? Look for a niche. Look for a niche in your market. What, I mean, there's always opportunity out there. There's, you know, when one door shuts, there's always another one that opens. So, you know, look for the need in the market and look for a way you, you can penetrate. You know, the best people out there uh, and entrepreneurs that make it happen are problem solvers. They look for a problem and they solve it. I mean, I think that's the best advice I can give um, to anyone looking to, to, to start out there is, you know, look to solve a problem and also look at the ways that you can generate the best revenue and the best return on investment for the time spent doing it. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that handle a lot of REO business, but the profitability and the margins off that is not very good. When you can do, you know, essentially what I'm doing and, and, and you know, make a but a, a huge rip off of it as opposed to dealing with REOs or dealing with short sales. It's really, you know, look at the return on investment when you're trying to problem solve. You know, maximize that time. Brandon, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? Oh, I, I believe we covered most of it. And, um, you know, I think you when you asked me, you know, how people can really learn from this, it's by doing. Uh, it's by taking this and, and, and getting rolling the sleeves up and actually doing it. Because I, I you know, I get approached um, from real estate agents a lot, you know, wanting to know what the special sauce is. And the special sauce is hard work. Just, just <laughs> you know, that's it. Put in the time and effort. You know, when I got started, you know, 80, you know, I'm still working 60, 70 hours a week. You know, put in that time and effort, and, and I'm an open book. You come to me, you want to know how I do something, I'll tell you. I, I love to see people make money and, and better themselves and their situation. But it's, it requires you to roll up the sleeves and, and really work those hours. And if, and if you want to make it happen, you have to have that dedication because no one else is going to do it for you. Well, Brandon, you rolled up your sleeves and you've shown your entrepreneurial spirit. Your ability to identify what the market wants and provide it at a profit is admirable. Your keen eye for opportunity, your strong work ethic, and your straightforward honesty are certainly keys to your success. Your past is admirable. Your future is bright. Thank you again for being our Rising Agent of the Month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. 
And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.